Everybody, if you would, please welcome Steve Starks to the stage. Thanks, Steve. See you. Good? Yeah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a great event. We've got um, approximately 800, just under 800 real estate industry professionals um, with a lot of thoughts and questions around what's the Larry H. Miller Group up to. And, um, and hopefully I think you're going to be able to give some good questions. I mean, some good answers to some of those good questions. So, um, so I'm going to go ahead and just kind of kick it off, but probably doesn't need a lot of introduction. But for those of you who maybe do need it, Steve Starks, who is the current CEO uh, and member of the board at the Larry H. Miller Company, also the past chair of EDC Utah and the Salt Lake Chamber. He's the previous president of the Utah Jazz, which is funny because I heard that you were a big Portland Trailblazers fan. No, not the case. Um, if that's the case, it's because of your Weber State connections, right? I'm a big fan of Damian Lillard. There you go. Okay. From the Weber State University. Okay. Well, good. Um, also, just speaking of Weber State, can we get a, a little love for a couple of Weber State alum up here? Thank you. Yep. There we go. There we go. Let's go Wildcats. Steve is currently serving as the governor's Olympic and Paralympic advisor and as a member of the Utah Board of Higher Education. Did I miss anything? You got it. I got it. OK. Um, well, there's a lot, I think, that is relevant to Steve and to the Larry H. Miller group and how all of that translates to what we're talking about here today from a real estate standpoint, from a sports standpoint, from a healthcare standpoint, and a variety of other things. Um, but before we talk about Larry H. Miller Company, I want to know more about who Steve is. And certainly we, we know you for all the titles that we just discussed, but who was Steve before the titles? Well, thank you. And first of all, just thank you for um, having me here and congrats on a great event. We're humbled to be part of uh, organizations like this and to be part of this community, to be a part of the Utah business ecosystem. and. We don't take it for granted and, and would just acknowledge that we're new in a lot of ways to this industry and, and group. We've always done some in real estate, but we're grateful for the partnerships we have and grateful for the way that we can collaborate to do big things for Utah. Um, I grew up in, in California until I was 10 years old, and then our family moved to, to northern Utah. We moved around a bit, but um, ended up in the Ogden Valley, grew up in Huntsville. Uh, which I still call home even though I haven't been there for 20 years. Went to Weber State University and, um, and went to D.C. Uh, to do an internship with Senator Hatch's office in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Planned to go to law school and after a few months decided that I didn't want to be in D.C. and I didn't want to go to law school. And so I came back and um, I had the opportunity to, to manage Nolan Karras's gubernatorial campaign. And Nolan Karras is a great Utah and a, a phenomenal person. We lost in the primary to John Huntsman. And long story short, he hired me to help manage his transition team and then serve as uh, the, the lead on a project to improve the operations of state government. And I did that for a couple years and was getting ready to go to business school. 
when I asked Larry Miller for a letter of recommendation and he said, why don't you come and join our company instead? And so uh, that was a little over 16 years ago and I've done a variety of things uh, for the company. We live in South Jordan, my wife Camilla, and we have three daughters. And, um, and so that's, that's Steve Starks. Nice. Um, I read a quote. Actually, it was a quote that you had attributed to Gail, so it wasn't your quote, but it was a quote that you'd found inspiring. And I wanted to read it back to you and see if you wouldn't share with us why you found this so inspiring. And, and Gail said, change is inevitable, but we must do more than simply change. We need to improve, and improving takes knowing what needs keeping and what needs fixing. Having that kind of discernment requires being involved. Can you talk more about why that struck a chord with you? Yeah, I think that I can do that best just by telling the story of, of how we've arrived where we are today. Um, I was uh, named the CEO in August of 2019, had been with the company for a long time, knew the organization, had a lot of love for the Miller family and, and our teammates, the executives. And so we were an automotive platform and we were a sports and entertainment platform. And COVID hit and this arena shut down, our movie theater shut down. Um, in some states, our automotive dealerships were literally shut down. And over about a three-week period, it forced really constructive conversations about what the Miller family wanted the future of the business to look like. And we were very collaborative in that process. We have a strong board of directors, an incredible executive team. And those conversations led us to reimagine what the future of the company could look like. And fortunately, after the first initial weeks, the organization started to perform very well. And that gave us breathing room to be able to say, hey, let's think about transformation from a position of strength and reimagine what we wanted to be in the future. And so we didn't want to just change. And that's, I think, the essence of that quote is that it's not just about change, it's about improvement. And it's easy to change. It's really hard to change, change and transform. And what we wanted to do was build a more robust, diversified organization that was resilient, which is one of the themes of, of this conference, and that could allow for future growth and diversification over a long period of time. That decision, you know, so that was the vision. And then we started to have specific conversations about the Utah Jazz and was that something that after 36 years the Miller family needed to own anymore? And the decision was made that, that no, we could redeploy that capital in new areas. Um, a year and a half later we decided to sell um, the automotive group, which at the time was the second largest privately held automotive uh, retail platform in the country. And we closed on that in December of 2021. And we had a point of view on the market and we felt like we were a bit, in a bit of an asset bubble and, um, and also just a point of view on that industry. And so those two liquidity events gave us the opportunity to reimagine and transform. And, and really since then, we've, we've decided that we wanted to build a real estate platform. And that began um, through the leadership of Brad Holmes and his team with the acquisition of Daybreak. And we can get into that later. But that's allowed for a future or for additional vertical integration in and around real estate, a healthcare platform built on a great skilled nursing uh, facility business, investments platform. We have a, an automotive finance company. And, um, and so that, that quote, I think, embodies that 
sometimes people say like it's like Utah has to change or we have to change and I think the point is Utah the Larry H Miller company every business has to continually transform and you take all of the good and you build upon it and uh, if we do it right then hopefully we have a better organization or a better state absolutely so obviously I mean we're, we're hearing you know discussions about your portfolio diversity and how those acquisitionally you're you're growing into a variety of different services and product types I want to hear more about each of those and what that overall portfolio looks like but I but I also wanted to touch on the fact you mentioned that this um, you touched on resiliency and the other theme for this this event today is really kind of the the juxtaposition between disruption and resiliency and you guys have have been disruptors. Larry H. Miller has disrupted the industry, I would say, for the positive, but can you talk a little bit more about what that may have looked like as well and how that continued evolution that you're discussing started, looks today, and you intend to look tomorrow? Yeah, I, I'm going to answer this a little differently than, than you might think. I, I don't think that we would be so arrogant to pretend that we've disrupted an industry that has been around and that we take pride in being part of. Many of you have been at this for decades. Steve Price was just here. We look to people like that and our partners, whether it's the Gardner Group or the Boyer Group or many others that we partner with. And we wouldn't pretend to come into the industry and think that we could disrupt it. What we want to do is be additive and we want to invest in a way that can help lift the communities that we do business in in the state and so um, if there was any disruption, I think the acquisition of Daybreak returned that asset to a local owner who was invested in the community. And all of you are aware that at times when you have private equity and they come into a market that oftentimes they're not as invested in the long-term health of that community, that they have an obligation to their investors. And so to us, it represented a great investment. It also represented local investment into a community and really the opportunity to work with an incredible team at Daybreak to be able to not only continue that project and but to leverage that team to go do more of that in and around our communities because we're really proud of that project and I live there have raised my family there have brought three girls home to our house there and there's just there's a difference when you have people that are invested long term and the health of health, the health of the community, and so that's how we've thought about it. Um, so maybe not disrupt, but enhance, enrich, continue to invest, and and think long term about how we do it the right way. And fortunately, we have very patient capital. We don't have fun life cycles. We don't have to get in and out of a project really quick in a way that could sacrifice quality or or um, craftsmanship and the residential aspect. But we're thinking in decades. And that helps. So, um, so when I'm thinking and I'm I'm hearing what you're saying about disruption, and it uh, absolutely I think checks the box that we're looking for. And I think ultimately, when I think about Larry H. Miller Group and what we all mostly know, which is you know um, automotive dealers and um, especially successful at that and then of course the sports presence and how that's grown just the overall Larry H. Miller family but then this kind of pivot which um, I guess the question I want to ask is 
as we're talking especially about daybreak and what that represents to your portfolio was it was it a matter of daybreak was such a great opportunity it justified the real estate venture or was it more the other way around that this was a very deliberate decision to become you know major players in the real estate industry yeah yeah well we like real estate as, as an asset class it's durable it's a hard asset and so as part of our overall transformation strategy we wanted to be in real estate that was something that everybody aligned on that particular opportunity um, it was unique because several of us knew about it. Like I said, I lived there. Brad Holmes lived there. And we saw the potential for what that could continue to be. And so it was a great entree into real estate in a more robust way than we'd ever done before. We've developed movie theaters and built car dealerships and, and had done some really important real estate projects, but never something like that. And so that represented um, the first major step into it. And since then, We've added a home builder. We acquired Destination Homes last year. Um, we have partnered with Ivory Homes on a great project in Summit County, um, in, tw in Twilla, and other projects have come our way through joint venture partnerships. And so we'll both invest with a partner or we'll develop and, and we really like the, the team that we have that is transformational in and of themselves and they'll be able to go do this at scale. Uh, not, only, not only in Utah, but around the West. And we think that when it comes to solving some of the issues around affordability, that a master plan approach can do that in a very unique way while preserving a high quality of life. So you're, you're absolutely touching on all of the kind of undertones of, of community here. And we're, we're hearing about affordability and we're talking, I think, about sustainability. And I'm curious, can you talk a little bit more about what you think the Larry H. Miller Real Estate Group's approach by way of community and how you impact the community and, and what that looks like and how you're driven? Yeah, we, we recently thought about what is our brand statement for real estate and what we decided on is that we need to think about how the resident feels over a long period of time. And so we want somebody to be happy when they first buy a home and then we want them to be happy when they move up into a community and we want them to have a place that allows for um, not only high quality of life, but a place, and, and let me just share the Daybreak story that's unique. We have different segmentations in Daybreak and it's all mixed together. You have townhomes and you have single family homes at a half a million dollars, and then you have single family homes at $2 million. And that sense of community because of the way that it's designed does something for the fabric of those that live there. And, and I'm a kid that grew up when I wasn't in the $2 million house growing up. I was always growing up in the houses that were on the more affordable side of things. And when you take a community and you have kids that play with each other, I was inspired by kids that I knew whose parents were really successful and it inspired me to want to do more in life and, and dream bigger in a lot of ways. And the community design has a big role in that. Because if you put people together in a very thoughtful, intelligent way, there are kids that are inspired and we think it fosters upward mobility in a very unique way. And that's, that's the American story. And we shouldn't undervalue what that means to generations of kids who's, it's gonna be increasingly difficult to have the ability to buy a home. 
we see that. So we have to design our communities in a way that you're not pigeonholed or limited because of where you live, but that you can be part of a community with all different types of income and home segmentation. And um, we think that's unique. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely. And, and I think there's probably actually a pretty ripe appetite in this audience to hear more about um, what that approach to from an affordability standpoint looks like, whether it's single family dwellings, whether it's, um, I don't know if Larry H. Miller's interest goes further into the multifamily side. Is that more of a suburban product to you? Do you focus any on any sort of urban affordable scenarios? And just give us a sense for what your appetite looks like. Yeah, we are already in multifamily and we love that asset class. When we acquired Daybreak, we had 200 acres that's called downtown Daybreak, and we haven't announced this publicly yet, but that's where we'll build the baseball stadium for the bees. That 200 acres has incredible entitlement. It's right in between Mountain View Corridor, the, the red line on tracks, fastest growing part of the county. And so we sat back and said, 200 acres anchored on the south end by the University of Utah Hospital, great entitlement, great transportation infrastructure, how do, we, how do we build that and develop that in a way that it's gonna have multifamily, it's gonna have density, but it also has to have places to recreate. It's gotta be, a, a, like we just heard from the Braves, a really great entertainment district anchored by a ballpark, retail, multifamily, office. And again, we're thinking about the next 20 years of developing that, and we wanna get it right, but multifamily is a big component of that. We just have to do it in a thoughtful way where, again, it allows for that upward mobility and a sense of community. And I think that was the fear, you know, call it five to 10 years ago when people started to realize that we had to get ahead of this affordability issue and that multifamily and density was gonna be part of the solution. I think there was this fear that it would somehow degrade the quality of our communities. And I think if we do it right, it doesn't degrade, it should elevate. And that's what we're aspiring to help be part of that solution. And Downtown Daybreak is gonna be really a once in a generation opportunity to do it well. So I wasn't gonna actually go there right away, but you just went there right away, so we're gonna go there. Um, talk to us about the bees. And obviously I, we're, we're hearing what the plans look like in Daybreak, but help us understand, first of all, just help us understand um, the role that Larry H. Miller has played in the bees over the last, you know, five, ten, even longer years, and then help us understand what the impetus was that ultimately caused you to take them out of Salt Lake City. Yeah, I'm going to sit up because I get really passionate about this. Um, we, the Miller family, as you know, uh, bought the jazz in the early 80s, and Larry did that to save the jazz. And that story is well told. I won't, I won't tell it again. But he and Gail then built this arena and invested in the team, and it became one of the most winning franchises in the NBA. So, but they did that because they loved the state more than they loved basketball initially. I think that Gail says that they had never been to an NBA game before they started the process of buying the Jazz. That's pretty remarkable if you think about it. Yeah. And, and yet they figured it out and, and did it very successfully. When we called Adam Silver, and let him know that we had reached an agreement to sell the team. Adam Silver literally cried because of his love for Larry and then Gail and Greg and the Miller family. And so sports is a big part of the DNA. 
But what a lot of people may not realize is that Larry, his first passion athletically was playing softball. And I remember being at lunch with Larry one time and we were talking about the movie Field of Dreams. And you've seen the movie, you know the goosebumps you get when he plays catch with his dad. And I remember Larry quoting a portion of that, mo that uh, movie and literally starting to cry at lunch. And then I get like teary-eyed and there's two guys talking at lunch and I'm thinking, what is everybody else thinking we're talking about? It's just baseball. Um, but baseball, baseball has that romantic nature that captures, captures, I think, the imagination and it's truly the American sport. And so when we sold the Jazz, we kept the Bs and then we started to discuss, okay, what's the future of the ballpark? And let me say that Salt Lake City has been an unbelievable partner. And there was nothing that Salt Lake City did or didn't do. We just ultimately decided that the opportunity in Daybreak represented once in a generation opportunity, that we would have really great access to the ballpark because of the transportation infrastructure. There were more kids that played baseball in and around that community in Northern Utah County, so it'd be closer to that. And then it gave Salt Lake a chance to reset on 13th South. And the reality is that sometimes it's painful, but you have to have a catalytic event to reset a neighborhood, a community. And that ballpark, when it was first built and where it is today, the community had changed a lot the, in and around that ballpark district. And so it's painful, but now we're being part of the solution and we've pledged to help lead an effort to raise $100 million to invest in the ballpark neighborhood to reimagine it. And we don't want to abandon that. We think that it will actually be enhanced and that we will have a win-win. And then the third thing I would say is that we really believe that Salt Lake is a major league market. And in working closely with Major League Baseball, building a new AAA stadium in Daybreak in no way prevents us from being able to get a major league franchise down the road. And so it clears the way for that at some future point, and we hope that's sooner than later. So you're saying Salt Lake has a chance, yeah? Absolutely, Salt Lake has a chance. Okay. Uh, and, and Fastest growing state, youngest state, best economy in the country. I mean, there's a real demographic shift taking place. And Utah has the makings of one of the most competitive markets, period, and particularly as it relates to professional sports. We've successfully hosted the Olympics. We're going to get them back at some point, 2030 or 2034. And you combine all of that together with an incredible um, quality of life, people that want to be here, and we're, we're absolutely on the radar of expansion. And that's something that we all should be proud of and have confidence in. Um, and, and I mean, I don't want to put you on too fine a point, but I'm going to put you on a little bit of a point. What does that look like? I mean, I, we're dancing around it, but you said Major League Baseball and you said Salt Lake City. Yeah. What does that look like to you? Well, I think that we should, like, if we're not having this conversation, then shame on us, right? When you think about what Major League Baseball does to the fabric of the community, there's a reason why people in Boston all have the B hat, and there's a reason why the NY stands out, and there's a reason why the C, everybody identifies with Chicago. And so we ought to be having these conversations on all levels as a community and baseball is one of those. And so what I think it is, is it's telling our story effectively. It's, and, and we can do that. We have the 29th largest media market in the country. We're already a top 30 media market. The Jazz way out punch their weight when it comes to revenue generation, support, sponsorship. 
And so, you know, from Logan to Southern Utah County, one of the largest contiguous urban areas in the country, not to mention the growth in Park City and, and Heber and around there. So we have the makings of a major league market. We need to continue to tell our story. And as a Larry H. Miller company, we're going to leverage our relationship with baseball to do that. And, and we believe that we have the fan base and potential owners and a community that would totally support it and would be enthusiastic about it. And then I would say that the best ballparks are close to downtowns. And, and so we would absolutely be invested in downtown Salt Lake with that. And I mean, I don't want to put Gary on the spot, but we just saw an awesome clip of the Power District. I can't, like imagine a ballpark there would be incredible. Close to the airport, North Temple, Tracks Line, I-15, I-215, beautiful view of the cityscape and the mountains. I've never heard of such a thing. Let's go. Crazy. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to start crying like Larry and I did that day, talking about <laughs> baseball at lunch. Okay, this is the moment where I'm going to look at the audience and I'm going to say if you haven't already started generating thoughts for ideas, for questions, you, you absolutely should. And that also means that you should be looking at the QR codes. In fact, can we queue up the QR on the screens for the audience? Um, if you have questions for Steve, now's the time to start inputting them into the system. Because um, I want to make sure that while we've got him under the Inquisition, that we're able to give him that, that justice. So a um, couple more questions for me. And, and like literally, I just want to put this down because they're mostly going to be baseball now that you've uh, opened that up. But, but I do think that there's some relevance to there will be naysayers. And there are going to be people who say, no, we're not big enough, or uh, the liquor laws and beer consumption because concessions at baseball is a big deal. And like, Can I speak to that? Yes, please, please. When we renovated the arena here, a, a massive part of that was food and beverage strategy. And I think we were 29th in the NBA in food and beverage per caps. And when we were done with the renovation, we're like top 14 now, I think, the Jazz are. And I always love to quote this stat. We were 30th out of 30 teams on alcohol per caps. Not a big surprise. We were number one out of 30 teams on ice cream per caps. It's, uh, where, we, where we may not be too successful in some areas, we, we certainly over-index on sugar consumption. <laughs> So for those of you new to market, what he's saying is halftime, you're great if you want a beer, but if you want ice cream, you better go up in the first quarter. No question. Yeah. No question. Long lines. Got it. Um, w just because I said that, now we're starting to fill up with questions. So I, w I, I do want to do um, respect to the audience and give them the chance, but I also, I also want to give you a chance, Steve, and, and talk to just... Overall, and, and we can take it out of the baseball conversation for a minute because that's literally all of the Q&A questions right now. But I do want to understand just kind of broader, um, where, where does the Larry H. Miller family and group want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now? If, if, if the LHM group is the icon that we think they are in this community, what does that look like? Um, it's a great question. Let me answer it by talking about our governance. We're a family-owned business, but the Miller family's been very intentional in creating um, an estate plan and a governance structure 
that can perpetuate the organization for many, many decades. And, and that's something that we're proud of and we think gives us a competitive advantage with a family-owned business at times you would worry what happens when the founder passes. And fortunately, they've been so thoughtful about planning for all of those scenarios that the company will continue. Um, we are gonna have patient capital. We're gonna build world-class platforms in real estate, in healthcare, and in investments. And then we'll be opportunistic um, in other opportunities as they come along. And so I think that what you should expect from us is the same discipline um, and hopefully quality that you saw with whether it was our automotive group or the jazz you would see in those other areas now. We love to invest in founder-led businesses, family businesses that maybe don't have a great succession plan and they're looking for somebody that can become a steward of their business. That was the story with Destination Homes. You know, founder-led, Brad Wilson owned that company, got to a point with his partner where they said, we don't know what the future looks like. And they loved the idea that we could become a steward, have a family-based value system. And so we're honored when people want to sell their business to us. And we take um, great care to ensure that it's cared for in a way that makes them proud long into the future. So um, fortunately, we have opportunities to acquire businesses, we'll look to do that. In other scenarios, we'll invest in companies like we did with Swig, another great founder-led business. We bought a majority share of that and we kept in the Savory Fund because they're great at what they do. And together, we're gonna scale that business across the country. There's gonna be some businesses that we acquire and grow that we plan to hold for the long term. And then there's other businesses where it's truly more of a private equity model where we think there's an opportunity to scale it and then would look for an exit. Uh, but those platforms will be long-term, durable, and, uh, and something that we should plan on for a long time. I'm gonna start going through these questions. And um, there's a lot more than we can get through, and a lot of them, again, are, are baseball. But I do wanna make sure that, um, especially given the fact that this is a real estate industry organization, and the majority of the folks here are real estate professionals, uh, um, that we that we touch on a couple more of those points, and one of those would be um, understanding. There's a question about understanding why the Miller family would sell extremely class A businesses and then reinvest proceeds in what appears to be much more risky types of businesses. Um, good question. So class A businesses, I'm assuming you're thinking automotive and and the jazz. And what I would say to that is that, um, thank you. I, I think that the Miller family's legacy was defined, their identity was defined so much by the ownership of the Utah Jazz. I was the president for five years and it started to define me, meaning that everywhere you go, people wanna talk about it. It can be exhausting. And I think that Gail and the family just got to a point where they felt like, you know, they could transfer stewardship to somebody else. They could redeploy that capital. And then the other element that was really important that um, not a lot of people realize is that Gail Miller wanted to speed up her giving. And so the Miller family with the proceeds, it's about $5 billion of, of transactions. The Miller family said, you know what, let's fund the corpus of the foundation. And Gail said, I wanna give some of that money away while I'm alive and not have to wait till I've passed to enrich the community at the, at the scale that I want to. And so that was part of the reason why as well. 
I don't know that we would view the ventures that we've talked about getting into as risky. Great management teams, hard assets, healthcare is a thesis that we have. You know the aging population or the silver tsunami, it's called by different things. We want to care for patients in a way that we can all be proud of and that business is growing quickly across the country. I think what you see, um, not to get into a risk conversation, but automotive specifically, you think about electrification and the impact that has on the business. You think about direct to sell, consumer sales model that Tesla's perfecting, that we think other manufacturers will follow. There's some risk inherent in that model. You think about uh, one single player with a $250 million contract gets injured. You bear the risk for the full contract. That's risky. You think about a star player that now demands a trade just because, that's risky. Or a player who does something outside of, you know, out, off the court, and now all of a sudden it's a huge news story. And so there are trends in the NBA too that I think inherently generate more risk. So I, I would say that we would view the organization more durable and diversified now than we did before. There's a question about um, Major League Baseball. And A, are we talking about an expansion team or are we talking about a purchase of a team, so a relocation? And B, are you talking about interest in a team by way of ownership or by way of development? Yeah, um, good questions. So I, I think that, first of all, you look and say, Major League Baseball has 30 teams, the NBA has 30 teams, the NFL has 32 teams, NHL has 32 teams. So when you think about expansion, to get to 32 teams, you're talking about baseball and hockey, right? And so we already have the NBA, obviously that's not gonna be an expansion franchise for us. So then you say, with baseball, there's going to be an expansion opportunity, the commissioner has said that, that's, that's well known. We ought to be in the mix for that. Like, as a starting point, we should be, because if you think about our market compared to other markets, we're competitive on every level. And so, you know, just, again, the foundation is we should be in, in the game on that. Um, our interest would be that we do have a long-term relationship with Major League Baseball, and more than anything, we think we owe it to the state to use that relationship and whatever resources we have to help with that cause. And the ownership group, we're confident that a great ownership group could come together. The Miller family would, would want to be part of that, may want to lead it. That's to be determined, frankly. But right now, I think the first step is to communicate the interest and build a robust coalition and awareness in our community that we can do that collectively together. And so um, I would say it's less about Larry H. Miller, more about the community, but we have a unique role that we can play in helping lead that. And then we would invite everybody to be part of us and, and would want it to be a very inclusive, broad-based effort. And as we started to have some of those early conversations, the response has been phenomenal. And people are eager to jump in and help. So, so certainly based and, on... And, and I would say that if we were involved, we would clearly want to be involved on the development as well. And, and I think we've learned, this conference has highlighted, that you can use sports venues to anchor mixed-use development in a world-class way. And we think that not only with the capital we can invest, but, but with the perspective we have and the experience that, that we could partner and, um, and do something pretty special. Uh, couldn't agree more, by the way. The question, though, 
that a lot of the folks are asking is, so, uh, so we're hearing the story about the kind of inherent interest and um, with you and with Larry and probably others in the family with baseball. Why baseball and not NFL and why not NHL? Yeah, great question. I think for, from our perspective, uh, they would say that we just, we have a relationship with Major League Baseball because of the B's ownership and we haven't cultivated a relationship with the NFL. I also don't think the NFL, um, I don't think that this market is viable for the NFL as baseball would be. And then as it relates to hockey, it's a great sport. Um, we have some, some data that we recently ha have gotten through a, a poll and, and people way out favor baseball in our market to hockey. And partly because it's a summer activity, we have little league um, fields that are accessible for kids growing up playing baseball. That's harder with hockey. It's hard to get ice time. It's expensive to get all the gear for hockey and play. And so, I mean, a hockey team would be great and we would never like, but that we don't think we're as competitive, competitively positioned to bring that like we would be with baseball. So, um, so I'm going to say this is one of the most important. I think, and I would just say, like, if you put it to a poll, I think it would be overwhelming that people would prefer baseball. Um, I, I don't think I know because we did poll. I mean, <laughs> we have that data. I mean, if you guys have interest in giving us a quick informal poll, go to the QR code. Don't even ask a question. Just tell us yes or no. Would you be in favor of Major League Baseball in Salt Lake City? Um, very interested to hear what you guys think. While you're doing that, one of the most important questions, Steve, will there be dollar beer nights in daybreak? <laughs> I don't know. That I, I'm starting to sweat on that one. Um, no, you know, here's, here's what I would tell you. Because um, liquor and alcohol sales generally are a topic in Utah. And we operate movie theaters. A lot of the times, um, we don't get to pick the movies. Now we get to pick whether we want to emphasize them and sometimes we choose not to and somebody has to literally buy a ticket, go into a dark theater and choose to watch that movie and we shouldn't try to be the morality police. At the same time, we also don't need to try to wave it in people's faces and promote something that we don't think is elevating to the community or it's values based. As it relates to alcohol sales, we're operating this venue or a minor league ballpark, the recognition is that we have a very diverse fan base and they're going to want to have access to be able to buy a beer and watch a game. And that's something that comes inherently with baseball. And while personally or the Miller family may not consume alcohol or, or would want that to be the feature, the recognition is that we need to provide a place where people of all backgrounds, particularly as our state becomes increasingly diverse, can go enjoy a game and can drink a beer. And we can do that, we think, in a very respectful way to everybody involved and, um, and would want to do that. And, and I think we have demonstrated that we can do that in a way that's respectful. And, and in no way should that even be a topic that would be limiting to an MLB franchise or anything like that. Not at all. Not at all. And it's... I was... In 2016, I think I was at the NBA draft lottery. And I was... I think the Jazz, we had like the 11th pick, 12th pick maybe. And Jimmy Butler was there. 
who plays for the Miami Heat now, he was representing the Bulls, and he was right next to me, and we were talking in the green, green room before, and uh, I, Jimmy Butler has a connection to Utah through a family member, and I was like, hey, Jimmy, I'm Steve Starks, I'm with the Jazz. I understand that you have a connection to Utah. And he's like, oh yeah, Utah, that's the place I can't buy a beer. And I was like, you're Jimmy Butler, you can buy a beer anywhere you wanna go, and we had a good laugh about it, but it's unfortunate that that's a thing, but I don't think that needs to be anything that would be prohibitive to us, collectively. Um, so, so two reactions really quickly. The first one is, um, so you were talking to Jimmy Butler. I don't know that you had a conversation with Charles Barkley over the All-Star break and the fact that he thinks we're a boring-ass city, but I am curious your reaction to that. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> um, first of all, I think he's an entertainer. Yeah. And we have to take what he said in the context of that. We met with Adam Silver over All-Star Weekend. And Adam said that this NBA All-Star game, I know that the viewership on TV was down, but it has been, that's a trend for the NBA for several years. He said that the interest in people coming to this All-Star game was very high, higher than in recent years. And he said, look, I would say that people love Utah. The people I interact with in New York and around the country, other teams, they love Utah. We had the chance to host the chief marketing officer of the NBA maybe seven years ago now. And a black woman, she was the CMO at very large international companies, an incredible person, and we spent a day together. And she said, now tell me about Utah. I said, well, you know, high growth, Silicon Slopes, diverse economy, great economy. She's like, that's great. Tell me what else about Utah. And I said, well, we've got beautiful mountains, the greatest snow on the earth. We've got southern Utah. And she's like, that's great. Tell me what else about Utah. And I was like, what are you getting at? And she said, here's what I've noticed. People from Utah are reluctant to say that you're the headquarters of a worldwide religion, that it's a family and faith-based community that's increasingly diverse, that has one of the best quality of life in America. She said, let me tell you, don't run from that, lean into that. People are craving it. And, and I think that's validation, because sometimes we joke like Charles Barkley and Shaq did, but the reality is that we should be proud of all of those things and not run away from them. People are, there's a reason why we're the fastest growing state in the country. There's a reason during COVID people came here in droves and they're not leaving. And so the things that make us unique are a competitive advantage. We shouldn't throw that out the window and try to become something we're not. And I'm really proud of who we are as a state, and I think that's being validated by all the success we're having. So let's be who we are, and let's continually evolve to be even better. I think that's the message. Well played, and, and agreed. Um, there are a lot more conversation points, and I'm trying to kind of silo these in ways that make sense. Um, but as we're talking about baseball, and I think it's giving us a kind of unique way to look at who we are as a market and really take stock of what we represent in a way that you just referenced, what does that look like based on what we know would be, call it competing markets, for a Major League Baseball team? What do those competitive advantages of Utah look like in that context versus some of what other markets might look like? 
Well, again, I, I, I just would go back to those distinguishing features. Fastest growing state, okay? If we're not number one, we're number two or number three. Great economic environment, the best economy in the country, low unemployment, a diverse economy. We don't rely on any one industry. We have a diversified economy. That's a great selling point. Uh, transportation infrastructure. The Delta hub is a huge competitive advantage. And then if you think about, and we had our analysts put a chart together that's really interesting. If you look at the flight paths from other MLB cities when they go to the West Coast, they fly over Utah all the time. So Salt Lake is geographically and strategically located that would be on its way when you're already flying from the Rockies to play the Dodgers or the Giants, or if you're the Rangers going up to play Seattle in the AL West. And so you have a, a, a geographical advantage that we would want to play up as well. And then, you know, we got some great advice recently that um, if Major League Baseball wanted to expand sooner than later, let's put them in Smith's ballpark and then go build a stadium. We'll figure that out. We, we are ready to go with a stadium that we can flex up to 14,000 people. That's probably a competitive advantage against some of the other markets that don't have that ready to go. And so let's, let's play that up as well. You're smiling because you were part of that conversation too. And I think that we wanna, um, we wanna use every advantage we have. And, and that I would just say this as a summary statement. I really believe that it, when we work together as a market, that we can accomplish really big things. And we're fortunate to live in a place where people collaborate together. And, and again, I, I'm really confident that we can tell our story effectively and that we would figure out the details of building a ballpark, owning a team, and, uh, and being one of the best MLB franchises in baseball. You're going to keep going baseball, aren't you? Uh, I, I, I was actually. I keep trying to do summary statements here, but. <laughs> okay. Uh, you're doing great, by the way. You're doing great. Um, Amanda Covington, our chief corporate affairs <laughs> officer, I'm sure very nervous right now. I don't know where she is about what I'm saying publicly. <laughs> uh, she should be, but that's okay. Here's what I'm going to say. And, and I was smiling. Yes, I, I was part of that. And I, and I, um, I love the fact that I happen to be in a position with resources and people around me that afford us some, um, some thoughts around that. Um, but I'm also smiling because as you're talking, I'm just getting people were interested enough that the poll is taking off. And there are probably of the, I don't know, 600 people that are sitting here right now, 300 responses. And aside from the fact that a couple of guys are definitely saying yes to beer nights, <laughs> everybody else is saying yes to MLB. This makes sense, and I think you've got a market, at least in the real estate industry, that sees the potential value there and are absolutely behind you and everything you guys are doing. So, cool. thanks. Thank you. Yeah. That's exciting collectively. Yeah. Um, there are other questions, not many that aren't about baseball, but there are a few other questions, and I had a few others, but, but ultimately, I think, you know, going back to understanding more about where uh, Larry H. Miller wants to go, what that looks like. Talk to us a little bit more about some of the companies. So we talked about the diversity of your portfolio. We talked about destination homes, and we've talked about a few other things. But help us understand more about what else is, what does that look like? Yeah. 
Well, let me let me talk about the. This is going to be hard because we just talk about baseball now. We're going back to business, and it's at the end of the day. That was so your fault, for I the know. record. So stay with me here for a minute. Yeah. Um, when we think about platforms, we we would define it as a collection a collection of adjacent businesses that, when working together, can give you a competitive advantage. And so, if you think about an automotive platform, um, we could add a dealership and implement it, and then get economies of scale in a way that gave us a competitive advantage. And so if you apply that principle to real estate, land acquisition, it starts with that. A, a world-class team that can go design a community and lay it out, um, develop lots, we have that. Then we add an adjacency and destination homes where we can build on, on many of the lots that we develop. That's a competitive advantage. Now think about adding multifamily, the capacity to build and, and to manage long-term multifamily. And so for us, that takes time. You can't evolve quicker than what you can sustain. You'll collapse on yourself. And so we're trying to build up these platforms in a way that's, that's very aggressive, but also doesn't compromise our ability to do it well. And so as we think about our future, we'll look at adjacencies to those core businesses we have in real estate and in healthcare. Um, I should mention that we were fortunate enough um, to be awarded a, a thousand acre project uh, by CITLA in Saratoga Springs. And the team will go out and now design a community, we'll build some of the homes, and we'll bring in great partners like we have at Daybreak and others to help build homes. But those are the type of things that we'll do more of. Healthcare, um, again, the thesis around that is an aging population. Our business model is transitional rehab care. So if somebody's had a hip replacement, they're in the hospital for 48 hours, They'll go to one of our facilities. They're all five stars, single patient rooms, nutritionists on staff, very low, some of the lowest in the industry readmission rates. And so that's a business that we're growing in Ohio and Pennsylvania and California. And then we're adding um, assisted living to that as well because there's sometimes when a patient, uh, depending on their age, can never get out of that rehab and they can't go back home, they need to go to assisted, assisted living facilities. And so we've just added one of those in Lehigh, Utah, and uh, we'll want to have the same level of quality there. Um, we have a great company that does automotive financing across the country called Prestige Financial Services. Um, that's a big business that will continue to grow. And, and then, like I talked about earlier, uh, looking to invest and acquire other really strong businesses. Awesome. So we, we would be defined now as a family investment office. And that's an emerging class of investor or owner. And um, it's akin to private equity, but it doesn't require outside capital, which again starts that. You, you have to have a, a return in seven years. And the challenge with private equity at times, and no offense to anybody who's, and I think you would agree with this though, is that in private equity, because you need a return for your investors, it often means that you have to sell your best performing companies because they're worth the most. And when you have a family office investment group, you can hold on long-term to your best performing assets and not have to sell them. And so we, we really like the attributes that that gives our ability to invest and grow. So we are getting close on time. Um, there's one other question I wanted to ask. And then I think there are a couple of questions here that are, are showing quite a trend that are worth asking as well. And um, the one I wanted to ask you, Steve, was understanding to your point about baseball and business, can we talk for a minute about 
um, less business and more philanthropic um, ventures and talk to us about what sort of an impact Larry H. Miller has had, what you continue to have, and what you want that to look like. Yeah, the Miller family has the, the Larry H. and Gil Miller Family Foundation. It's a large foundation that gives away um, money every year. They like to look at the social determinants of health. They've identified five areas. They love to partner with people, and they love to see outcomes. They want to invest in causes that are going to have a sustainable improvement or enhancement. And so a couple examples of that. Um, Gail, uh, led a, she, she made a $50 million donation to Primary Children's Hospital in, in Lehigh, and then has helped fundraise around that as well. That has a long-term impact on the community in, in Utah County, and it gives access to quality care closer to a growing population there. And so that's an example, health care that's, that's really meaningful. You know that Gail's been heavily involved in homelessness and wanting to invest to help with uh, those challenges around the unhoused, and she's been tremendous in that. Um, and then we'll look at partner organizations that come and have a strong thesis around how they can lift and that their model is going to prove out. And, and so the Miller family will invest with them too. Last fall, we, we held a summit for the first time, and we invited business partners on one day. We had phenomenal speakers, but we designated a day just for philanthropy. And we think that we can help convene those that give and can do that in a collaborative way that has a greater impact when done well. So we had the Walton Family Foundation come out and spend time with us in Utah. They were on a panel. And so if we can convene local, um, those that are giving locally with those that are giving nationally that want to invest in Utah, then that's a way to also enhance and make more effective the giving that takes place. Miller family, I would just say, it gets easily as much enjoyment out of that and probably more when they can give to a cause and bless people's lives than they do even on the business side. It's, it's really remarkable. And for those of us that work for the company, we take pride in what we call the virtuous cycle. As we turn a profit, we know that that profit will go into giving and enriching the community. And that virtuous cycle has been, you know, we've been blessed by it. And we love companies that adopt the same model of, you know, you want to do well by doing well. I don't actually want to ask another question because that's such a great note to end on. And I think um, I personally would say, and I think everybody in the room would probably agree that, that all of the great things that Larry H. Miller has done as a company, as a for-profit entity, as a business have been um, inspiring and great and a lot of really good things that many of us would try to model. Um, but, I, but I also think it's incredible knowing what you guys have done off the, I shouldn't say off the books, but not for-profit, right? And the ways that you've um, lifted communities and invested in communities and in causes that I think are aimed to help those that need the help is really inspiring. Um, maybe not immediately as inspiring as that, but there is one other question that I want to ask, and it's popped up here a couple of times as well. And that is just to get a sense from you, as we're talking about Utah as a market, where this is going, of course you talked about sports and we're talking about real estate. Can you, using that lens, think about the opportunity as Utah for 
the next potential, win well, it wouldn't be the next, but for the Winter Olympics coming back, the impact that's, that had on us the first time and what that could mean for us in the future. Yeah, the Olympic, well, fortunately, Utah has invested in and maintained the venues for the Olympics. And so when the IOC is thinking about markets to give the games to, we stand above because we have almost game-ready venues that are already built. We've demonstrated that we have, a, a, I was going to say a fan base, but the, the citizens of Utah will rally around the Olympics, will volunteer at record numbers, can speak languages, and will jump in and help make it a success. The first time the Olympics came, in a lot of ways, it put, it was good for Utah. It brought publicity and awareness around the globe to our community. The next time we host the Olympics, it's a way for us to give back to the cause because we have venues, we have a great infrastructure, we have leadership here that's experienced at running games. And so for us, we know we can do it successfully and hopefully we can do it in a way that's good for the world and that they're gonna take a less risky chance on Salt Lake as they would a market that's never hosted it before. So we think it's only good. We would be eager to give back to the IOC and the international athletic community. And it would be good for our state too. I think people get concerned about growth and, and but the reality is that's happening and we've made investments in infrastructure. We do have to, to be wise stewards. We have to think about air quality. We have to think about water. We have to think about those things that will ensure that Utah remains the best place to live in America, in my estimation. And if we do those things effectively, then it will be great for, for us and for the Olympics. Awesome. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I couldn't be more honored to be able to sit up here with you, have this conversation, talk to you as a business leader, but also think of you as a friend. And so this conversation has is, is been fantastic. Um, if you guys agreed that this was um, inspiring or interesting or even slightly entertaining, please give Steve a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, your time is almost up, and, um, and I'm talking about the developer of the year. So you have a couple of minutes. If you haven't already voted and you still want to get your vote in, you only have a couple of minutes for that to count. So get your votes in. Hopefully you guys have heard enough, you've learned enough, you've seen enough, you've talked to enough people that you have a good idea who your favorite pick for your developer of the year would be. Before we announce that though, so hurry and get those done.
Mike was right. If you haven't been there, you should have been. And if you aren't planning on it this year, you should be. I'm talking about Neopoly. I'm talking about year number four. It's coming up. It'll be in September again this year. And I'm reaching out to you right now to give any one of you in this audience the opportunity to host this year's venue. So if you have a thought on a space or a property that you think would make sense and benefit by bringing in another few hundred to the tune of six or 700 real estate professionals into your space for networking, for educating, to just see your space, but also get all the benefit of what is Neopoly, reach out and let us know. Okay, on that note. Oops, that is one more time. Sorry, that was, that was not what you might have thought it was. <laughs> one more time wanted to name the three finalists for your developer of the year for 2022. Richie Group, Columbus Pacific, and Jay Fisher Companies. Are we closed on our poll? 30 seconds. <laughs> I guess I could sing and dance, but you guys would probably not appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Okay, well, while you guys are wrapping that up, I would, I would like some response from the crowd because I think some folks are really trying to get their votes in. If you felt like today's venue was appropriate for this event, let me know. Yes, okay. All right, good. If you were familiar, if you had been to, or I guess even if you hadn't been to a previous symposium, but if you felt like this new format made sense, if it was a yes, let me know. Yes? Okay. Okay, last question. If you voted for somebody for developer of the year, Please let me know right now. Yes? Okay. Okay. I'm hoping we're tabulating results because I think the suspension, it's killing me. I can't even, words are hard right now. How are we looking? There we are. The envelope, please. Really? Are you guys interested? Does anybody want to know? Like I'm legitimately not going to tell you who won if you guys aren't going to show some interest in this. Who wants to know who our new 2022 Developer of the Year is? I'm pleased to announce Jay Fisher. Round of applause, please, everybody. Okay, thank you, everybody. For those of you interested, um, there will be an event next 
I think next month, sometime in the near future, where we will have our Developer of the Year event focused on Jay Fisher. We'll allow them to help us uh, dictate a time and a place that makes sense for their team. I want to also congratulate the other two finalists, the Ritchie Group and Columbus Pacific, because you guys were absolutely um, deserving of the recognition. So another round of applause, please, for all three finalists. And with that, we conclude. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I appreciate every one of you. Don't forget to go to the after parties. So turn the light.